hear me now? All right. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. The easy way of finding 1 Peter is just go to 2 Peter and turn left. <clears throat> My knees have gotten better to where I can uh, take standing a little bit longer, so I'm trying to do this for the first time without the stool this morning, and in the first service, they said my legs were pretty fidgety, so I'm going to try to be aware of that and not, not be too fidgety. I don't really know what that meant, but I'm going to try not to do it, whatever it was. <laughs> First Peter chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 12, so let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord. Says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may receive with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let's pray. Jesus, we come this morning seeking you, you and no other, you who are before all things and hold all things together. We know that it is only by an encounter of you, with you and a revelation of who you really are that we are truly changed. God, that's what I want to happen here this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you come and do the work in us that only you can do. May we receive that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Unlike most of the Apostle Paul's letters, which were usually addressed either to a specific church or to a specific person, Peter wrote this letter to be shared among several churches. And in these churches that he was writing to, they, they consisted of Christians that were really from two different backgrounds and cultures. You had Jewish converts who came from very religious culture, and you also had Gentile converts who came from a very uh, immoral and pagan cultures. So on the one hand, you had people who had been steeped in in religious strict morality and on the other hand you had people who had been steeped in hedonistic immorality but regardless of their background they were now united together through their faith in Jesus Christ and if you think about it the makeup of those churches of those kind of people are really not much different than the kinds of people that we have in this church Many of you were raised in religious homes where you went to church all the time, but some of you had no church experience at all before you began coming to this one. Um, before you were actually saved, there are some of you who managed to live uh, pretty strict moral lives. Others of you lived like the Gentiles of Peter's time um, in abundant immorality. And let me just say this, in case anyone's not clear on it. If you take two people who don't know Jesus, 
and one lives a very moral life, and the other lives a very sinful life. The one with high morals is no closer to heaven than the one living the sinful life. God is no more pleased with the moral person without Jesus than he is the immoral person without Jesus. They are equally lost and equally doomed for destruction. Morality does not earn God's favor. His favor is found in Christ alone. Now, does that mean that morality isn't important? Not at all. But I think there are two different kinds of morality that we need to be able to identify, especially in our own life. These will be up on the screen here if you want to follow along and, and take notes. One kind of morality is what I call religious morality. And it sees good behavior as a way to earn God's blessing and favor. The other one is what I would call gospel morality. Gospel morality sees good behavior as a result of having God's favor and blessing through Christ. Another way of putting it is doing good in order to get something from God versus doing good because you know you have it. Jesus has already provided it. He paid for it all. Now then, even though there are these similarities between us and the people that Peter wrote this letter to, I'm afraid that the message that I'm going to be preaching today may not be one that a lot of us are going to be able to relate to very well. Not just you, but I mean really Christians in the United States in general, may not be able to relate to this very well, but I'm still going to preach it because it's true, it needs to be said, and it has everything to do with the absolute worth of Christ. Now, when I say we're not going to be able to relate to it very well, I'm talking about relating to it really on the level that the people that Peter was writing this to uh, may have because of the times and the, and the culture that they were in. Now, in no way does that mean that that this letter is not applicable to us. In no way does it mean that it is not relevant to us. But you'll understand what I say in a minute. And the reason I say this is because listen to how Peter addresses this letter at the very beginning of it. In verse 1 of chapter 1 he says, To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He calls them aliens. And by aliens, he means a stranger, a wanderer in a foreign land. It's someone who is away from the comfort of home, surrounded by people who are much different than they are. The people in these churches here all shared one thing in common, and that was the fact that this new life that they had discovered in Christ was so different, so other than the culture that they had grown up in, the people that they grew up around now rejected and persecuted them for it. This life was so different that it didn't fit in the culture. There was no place for this life in a culture of hedonistic immorality, 
nor was there a place for this new life in a culture of strict religion either. But it wasn't like they all packed up and moved off and escaped to the desert and created a Christian commune so they could get out of the culture and away from all the persecution and rejection. No, they still remained in it. But because their lives had been so radically changed by Jesus, they now lived there as aliens. They now understood that even though that they were still in the culture, they were not of the culture. What used to be their safe place, their comfortable home, was now a foreign land to them because they had been so radically changed. And if they were going to be in it and not of it, there was going to be consequences for that. They were going to run into some resistance for this. They would have no doubt faced lots of rejection. Some would lose friends that they had their whole life. Others probably lost jobs that they depended on to support their family. Some would have lost prominent positions, maybe in the government or some other civil or social organization. Many would have been shunned and disowned by their own families, not to mention the verbal and even the physical abuse that they would also endure. think about it and you have to go did they not realize that there's actually a way to avoid all that without having to pack up and move away I mean all they had to do was just go along with the rest of the culture I mean come on I mean you can still meet together and worship God at least once and maybe twice a week and as long as they did that wouldn't that be enough Just meet with your Christian buddies, but don't act all crazy the rest of the time. No need to be some kind of Jesus freak. No need to rock the boat and create waves out there and disrupt things in the culture. Mess with the way that things have always been. No need to draw undue attention to yourself. Just blend in with everyone else while you practice your faith in private. I mean, couldn't they have just done that? Couldn't they have just acted same way that so many Christians in the United States do? Well, the truth is, I don't believe that they could. They couldn't just blend in. They couldn't just compromise with the culture. Why? Because they thought God was going to punish them if they did? No, because they understood that that was not who they were anymore. It's just not who they were. And it's because they knew what Peter said about them in verse 2 of chapter 1, that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. They knew according to verse 3 that the mercy of the Father had caused them to be born again to a, a, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew according to verse 4 that they had obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. They knew that no matter how much they suffered for it, that the life that they now had in Jesus was so much better than the life that they used to live in that culture. That the life of suffering with Jesus was infinitely better than a life of comfort without him. 
So they lived as aliens counter to the culture around them and they were persecuted and rejected for it but they didn't give in, they didn't back down, they didn't compromise because they knew that Jesus was worth it. He was worth it. The reason why I say we probably wouldn't be able to relate to this very well is because, I mean, we haven't had to endure the kind of persecution for our faith that they did. The freedoms that we have been blessed with in this country have allowed us to follow Jesus and speak out boldly about him without the fear of that kind of persecution, not at that level. And although that has been an incredible privilege that we have had, I believe it has also in many ways lulled us into a sense of complacency that causes us to just kind of blend in with the rest of the culture. And if we were to be honest, I believe most of us probably wouldn't say that we really feel like aliens in a foreign land. Now then, if I were going to follow the way that I've heard most messages preached on this subject right here, then this is the part in the sermon where I would accuse us of being a bunch of cowards, and I'd stand up here and make everyone feel just as horrible and just as guilty as I could, and make you feel so bad for not throwing out your TVs and and breaking up all your secular CDs and watching R-rated movies. And then I'd probably give examples of, of, of just how everyone in the church is living lives that look just like the culture. And then I'd, I'd talk about Peter's three denials of Jesus and show how that's exactly what all of you are doing. And by the end of the sermon, you'd all feel really bad. And that you've got to now do something drastic to appease this angry God or do something to relieve this tremendous guilt that has now been dumped on top of your head. But I'm not going to do that because you know what that would produce? A church full of people practicing the religious morality that I was talking about earlier. All that guilt and condemnation, it would cause some of you to change your behavior at least for a little while, but then you'd go right back to your old ways again. The thing is, your hearts would be no more drawn to the magnificence and majesty and worth of Christ than they were before you came into this building. As I've said many times now, Jesus is after your heart, not your behavior. Because he knows that if he can capture your heart, the behavior will take care of itself. I can't tell you, growing up, how many youth camps and youth retreats that I went to. And I'd come back feeling so horrible for the life that I was living. And I busted up so many tapes so much good music. (laughs) 
Two weeks later, I'd just go buy it again. I guarantee you, I probably bought the same Guns N' Roses tape at least 10 different times. <laughs> Young people are like, what's a tape? It changed my behavior for a little while, but my heart wasn't affected at all. And so I was right back to doing the same old things again. Okay, so what am I going to do then if I'm not going to take that kind of approach this morning? Well, first we've got to identify why. Why does it seem that so many Christians in the United States are living lives that look more like the natives of the culture rather than as um, strangers in a foreign land? aliens. Well, I don't believe it's simply because we are a bunch of cowards who are afraid of rejection. Although the fear of rejection is a legitimate fear that does hold many people back, I believe that we either haven't heard the whole truth or we don't really believe it. Tell you the truth, many of us haven't really heard anything worth suffering for. We've heard religion. We've heard many motivational speeches. We've heard a lots of instruction. We've heard good advice. But I don't think there's many of us that have really heard good news. You see, there's a message that God has for us that contains news that is so good, it doesn't just make you feel good, it completely and radically transforms your entire life and transforms you in such a way that you can't help but live counter to the culture. Transforms you in such a way that that fear of rejection or whatever is not even an issue. The message that God has is called the pure gospel. And most of us have heard versions that sound a lot like it. And we've heard bits and pieces of it. And those bits and pieces has at times caused something inside of us to kind of jump up. And wake up and go, whoa, what was that? But then it's gone again and it's something else. And we're like, I want to hear more of that. Where did that go? But the versions that we are so accustomed to hearing, especially down here in the Bible Belt, have been mixed with so many things that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. And just like the Bible says, a little leaven leavens the entire lump. We bought into versions of the gospel that have been tainted with a bunch of isms without even realizing it. I'm going to put the isms that we have bought into up there on the screen. There's a version that is mixed so much, probably the most popular one, that's mixed with legalism. Which puts all the focus on your outward behavior and following a bunch of rules and laws. We've mixed it with moralism, which is what I was talking about earlier. There's versions that have been fused with humanism and makes everything all about us and puts us at the center of the story. 
In the United States, we've done a good job of mixing the gospel with materialism and even patriotism. The result of that being that we start to equate the gospel with the American dream to the point where we can't even tell the difference between the two and we think that they're one and the same. You could probably add to that consumerism. When we buy into consumerism, it makes us come to church looking for just to receive and to get. It's all about what I want. It's my favorite song and my favorite verse. And I don't like this, but I do like that. And you just come to consume but never produce. God made you a producer, not just a consumer. And so we come to church viewing all of us up here as the producers, and y'all just come and consume. That's not how God designed his church to function. And when you bind to a gospel that includes these things like legalism and moralism and humanism and materialism and all that, it's naturally just going to produce a life that looks no different than the culture around us. It's not about, oh, we're a bunch of cowards afraid of being rejected. No, we have bought into these false messages that we have been hearing for so long. Our lives reflect what we believe. But the gospel, in its simplest and purest form, produces a life that is so much different than any culture in this entire world, that conflict is inevitable. Why? Because you can't have wickedness and righteousness together without there being any friction. You can't have truth come into a world of deception without there being some resistance against that. A culture that promotes human exaltation will absolutely mock a culture that values humility. Wickedness and righteousness cannot harmonize together. Truth cannot coexist peacefully with deception. Human exaltation will not tolerate humility. And so when these things come into contact with one another, conflict is inevitable. Struggle is inevitable. And on top of all that, there is an enemy of your soul who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour that the Bible calls the father of lies. And he's got a laser focus to do nothing but steal, kill, and absolutely destroy you. And so Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. It is inevitable for every follower of Christ. But we are submerged in a culture where comfort and ease are valued so highly that the thought of suffering being a normal part of life is unthinkable. What? So much so that many now conclude that a loving God wouldn't allow it. In fact, there's another version of the gospel that many have bought into that puts suffering 
completely outside of personal faith. It claims that health and material wealth and prosperity are the marks of a true Christian. Suffering in any form is taught to be outside of the will of God. Therefore, it has to be either a result of your sin or your lack of faith. How in the world can anyone even come close to squaring that theology with verse 13 of this text? Look at it again. He says, but to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Two things about that sentence. First of all, he says, share the sufferings of Christ. If suffering is a result of God's punishment or our lack of faith, then I don't believe that Peter would have referred to it as something that we share with Christ. Sharing anything with Christ is something that we could consider a privilege rather than something we should try to avoid. The second thing is that he says to the degree that we do share his suffering, keep on rejoicing. In other words, let the level of your rejoicing be equal to the level of your suffering. The more you suffer, the more you rejoice. If suffering were something so bad that we needed to try to avoid, if it was a sign of God's punishment or a result of our weak faith, then I believe Peter would have said something different there. He probably would have said something like, let your guilt be equal to your suffering. Let your shame be equal to your suffering. Let your repentance be equal to your suffering. But no, he says, let your rejoicing be equal to it. Why? Why should we rejoice if we suffer for living a life counter to the culture around us? Because of the very next verse. Verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now notice it doesn't say, if you suffer for the name of Christ, you will be blessed. It says, if you suffer for his sake, you are blessed. Which means that Peter does not see suffering as a means to gaining anything more from God. He doesn't see suffering as a means for our gaining any of God's blessings. He sees suffering as the blessing itself. He's saying suffering is the blessing. It's not if you suffer, you will be blessed. If you suffer, you're blessed. You're experiencing the blessing of the Most High God. Talk about countercultural. Does that sound crazy or what? I mean, who in their right mind would call suffering a blessing? I'll tell you who. It's someone who understands that our purpose on earth as Christians is to reflect the glory of God. And that his glory, many times, is shown most clearly when put under the pressure of suffering. 
Just like Jesus' hour of glory was his greatest hour of suffering, so we are privileged to reflect that glory in the hour of our own. That's why Paul would say in Philippians 3.10 that he wanted to know not just the power of Jesus' resurrection, but also the fellowship of his suffering. He said, I want to know it. Here in the United States, we may not suffer for Christ the way the apostles did or the way many of the people that Peter wrote this letter to did. But if your life has been transformed by the power of the gospel, you can expect it on some level. If you are leveraging your life for the sake of the kingdom, if you are living your life to reflect the glory of God, you are going to be attacked, you are going to be rejected, you are going to be ridiculed and falsely accused. It's going to happen. But the bottom line is this. It is so worth it. It's worth it a thousand times over. Because in that, you get to know Jesus in ways that you never will outside of that suffering. The problem, like I said, is that so many of us growing up in the Bible Belt have really experienced a little Jesus but a lot of religion and haven't really heard any news worth suffering for. It definitely isn't when it's mixed with all these other isms I talked about earlier. It definitely isn't when you've heard that there's something that you've got to do in order to earn more of God's love or more of His blessing. I mean, who would be willing to suffer for a message that says, God's just watching you to see if you mess up so that He can zap you every time you do? Who would embrace suffering for a message that says that God's blessings and favor in your life hinges on how good you are? Living with that kind of perspective of God is suffering enough in its own. But to know that before you ever did anything good or bad, before you even had a chance to try to prove that you deserved it or not. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. To know that you are deserving of God's wrath, but that the mercy of the Father has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To know that Jesus became all your sin and he has given you all of his righteousness. To know that you are a son and not a slave. To know that your sin has been forgiven. Your shame has been removed. Your life has been redeemed. To know that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that, even though it doesn't even scratch the surface on what God has done for us, that's something I'd be willing to suffer for right there. To know somebody like that 
To know somebody that would do that for me? Yeah, if it means I get to know him more, yes. That's why Paul would say in Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. You want to reject me? You want to mock me? You want to accuse me? Fine. Go for it. And that just puts me in the company of my Lord. Getting to do the very thing that he went through. I want to close by reading you something that was recorded as being said by the disciple Andrew. It's something that you won't find in the Bible. But there are other historians of that time that recorded things that happened around that time. And Andrew was one of the 12 disciples who met a horrific fate. He was sentenced to be crucified like Jesus. And there were many there who were there and witnessed that, and they wrote down the accounts of all that that happened. Apparently, Andrew knew what a blessing it was to suffer for Christ and what a privilege it is to share in his suffering. Because those who witnessed his execution recorded him saying these words as he was being led to his place of execution. It'll be up on the screen. Listen to this. O cross, most welcomed and longed for, with a willing heart, joyfully and desirously I come to you, being the scholar of him which did hang on you, for I have always been your lover and longed to embrace you. Andrew hung on that cross for three days. Three days. And those that witnessed this said, the more he suffered, the more he rejoiced and declared the praises of his king. Dudley Hall asked the question, why does the message that got the apostles killed only draw yawns from people today? I would submit it's probably because it's not the same message. The one that we've heard has been so watered down and mixed and added to with so many things that don't have anything to do with that original message that it has lost its draw and its power. In this church... We will endeavor to keep on discovering what that message is. Free from all the isms and religion and all the other junk that has been mixed in and added to. Next week, I'm going to continue with this. 
really honing in on another reason why suffering is inevitable for the Christian, but more importantly, why we should have no reason to fear it. Why we should have no fear for the suffering that is inevitable for a follower of Christ. And in doing so, we're going to be discovering even more treasure of the pure gospel. Don't miss it. I'm so excited about it. I wish I could just start it right now. I don't want to give you too much information to try to process, so I have to wait. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given us something. You have offered us something worth suffering for. Not that we have to suffer in order to get it, but getting it is what automatically leads to that. Lord, we want to hear... God, I want to hear whatever it was that Andrew heard that made him rejoice on the cross like that. I want to know what Andrew knew. Lord, continue to show us where we have latched on to things that have absolutely nothing to do with you and your truth. Lord, help us to let go of the traditions that we have held on to for so long. Lord, remove the scales from our eyes to be able to see you for who you are, to understand what it really is that you have done and who you have made us in you. Lord, I know, God, that when we actually start believing this thing, the message that you have given us that runs from the first verse of Genesis to the last of Revelation that all points to your Son, God, I know that when we really start believing that, God, we will be changed in ways that we never thought we'd be able to. And God, I pray for those in here right now. God, the heart's inside of them right now saying, yes, yes, that's what I want. I'm tired of religion. I'm tired of just going through the motions. Lord, would you give them the desires of their heart? That desire that is only satisfied in you. God, I pray for those in here who don't know you. Who have never decided to follow you. God, that t- today is the first time they've heard that, that there's something worth living for. It's so good that it's not just worth living for, it's worth even suffering for. 
Lord, they've been trying so many things to satisfy what's been itching in their life. God, I pray that you would draw them to the only, the only solution, which is you. So, Holy Spirit, I'm done. I've done all I can do. The rest is up to you. Have your way. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.